0: i'm the head of school here at new covenant as we i do know we have some visitors here which is really really exciting for sure so um, i think the first time that i really met or heard keith speak was last summer the summer of 2021 i was at the society for classical learners conference in charleston and uh was just yeah really impressed really sort of kind of amazed or blown away with sort of everything that i heard and so then when i went to the same conference this summer Um, I made a point to just sort of track with Keith and Keith, uh, led or taught on the leaders day at the SCL conference. And so I sat through four sessions with him. uh, and as I did so, then I was like, I have got to get this guy (laughs) to new covenant. Like our community, you know, needs to, needs to hear this. And so then we were able to set this up for tonight. and so then we had a, yeah, he had a fabulous time with our students, our upper school students, sixth grade through 12th grade uh, this morning, in which I think a lot of them in the beginning were sort of skeptical. They're like, is this guy just gonna yell at me and tell me I'm a lazy and I need to get off social media or something like that? Uh, but it was not that at all, and there was some really practical wisdom that was for them. And then, um, uh, and then he met with our teachers after lunch, and uh, you know, if I go like five minutes over, in a meeting, like a staff meeting or something like that, there's like anarchy, right? You know, it's like, look out, right? Like, like basically with Keith, we started like 20 minutes early and went 20 minutes uh, after, and they were still wanting more, right? They would have, if he had asked them to stay for five more minutes, 10 more minutes, they would have been like, yes, no problem. So, uh, so that was a great uh, visit for him with our uh, teachers this afternoon. And basically what I'm communicating right now is I need to stop talking. And you need to start hearing from him. So with that, uh, let's go ahead and uh, welcome Mr. Keith McCurdy.
1: Thanks, man. Good evening. Can you hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? So this really better not stink now, right? After that. Um, I'm glad to see so many folks here. Uh, How many of you have kids that heard me today? Raise your hand. Yes. Good. Well, I'm going to ask you about that in a minute. Um, I'll give you a quick bio. If you don't know, I've been in the mental health field for 30-plus years. I run a mental health clinic in Roanoke, Virginia, about five and a half hours north of here. Uh, And I also consult nationally with schools and churches and businesses, and I go around the country and speak to schools just like this, and to students and to parents. And uh, whenever I go anywhere, my wife always reminds me what we've told our children growing up. I have two kids that are classically educated, Uh, A young, uh, a daughter who's 25 and she's a young professional in Charlotte and a son who's now senior in college. And my wife and I both grew up in Roanoke. I'm one of five, she's one of five. Our hometown, so it's, and and I treat tens of thousands of people in my hometown. So it's pretty good bet if my kids go anywhere and do anything they shouldn't do, we'll hear about it. So growing, and my kids are always like, do y'all know everybody? And my wife's like, yes. We do, everyone, everyone. And so we used to tell our kids growing up, and I still tell my son this, whatever you do when you go out places, do not embarrass the family, right? And so my wife reminds me of that all the time when I go speak, she says, remember the family rule, do not embarrass the family. And I'm like, well, no promises. Uh, my daughter or my son, who is a uh, senior in college, he's a collegiate athlete, he is a total ham. He's always like, because sometimes I tell stories about my kids, He's like, tell stories about me, show pictures, give them my, my, uh, uh, my, my uh, uh, online information. They can look me up. I mean, he's total ham. And my daughter, who's a young professional, she always says, great. Hope you have fun. Make sure you eat really good food. because She's a foodie and do not tell any stories about me. So that's my daughter. So we're going to start with a story about my daughter <laughs> and her name is Sarah. And like I said, she's a, a design architect in Charlotte, but To to understand my daughter, the the main story, I have to tell you kind of like a sub-story of her growing up. And so my daughter uh, was an equestrian, is still still an equestrian, has ridden her whole life, been very accomplished. And she started riding when she was about five. And I had her at the the barn one day when she was around seven, and she was riding. And my daughter, since the beginning, did not want to ride ponies. She wanted to ride the big horses and for those of y'all who don't know ponies are not baby horses two different breeds you know but i didn't know that my daughter said dad really i thought it was a baby horse and so she rides these massive animals and so she's seven years old i'm at the barn i'm sitting outside the ring she's riding jumping cross rails and it's the first time she'd really been thrown hard by a horse into cross rails and literally this giant animal just flicked and flung my precious seven-year-old daughter into the dirt and cross rails. I jump up, the trainer across the ring jumps up. My daughter jumps up and punches the horse in the side of the head. I mean, jacked its jaw. So now I am totally confused because I'm like, and I look across the ring and the trainer looks at me and goes, so I sit back down. And so, I mean, how do you address this with your child later? You know? So we're, we're in the truck driving home and I'm like, Sarah, why did you punch that horse? And this will tell you everything you need to know about my daughter. She said, seven years old, he wasn't doing what I was telling him to do. Woo-hoo. So we nicknamed her Queen of Sass. In middle school, and she liked the name. That tells you something too. Um, when she graduated from her classical school, she is the one who gets rid of all the bumper stickers, gives away all the clothes, won't wear the color purple anymore because that was the team color. Uh, and you know, she doesn't suffer fools well. She'll tell you who should never be teaching, who who should who's been teaching way too long. That a dress code uh, with skirts is not appropriate for someone for a girl that's five foot eleven. That's what she was. Uh, I mean, she is, that's just her personality. So she goes to college. She gets into a very competitive design program. And her first day of college, she goes into a three-hour um, studio class. And it's freshmen to seniors. They're onboarding the freshmen, talking about the projects they're going to do, design projects for that year. And after this class, I get a text from my daughter. Remember the horse puncher? And she says, I've never been more thankful in my life than I am right now for my education. I'm thinking, she's been to college, she's been to one class, and she's already on drugs. It just doesn't make any sense. And so I call her, and she's like, I knew that would get you to call me. And I'm like, gosh, she never lets up. And I said, honey, why would you send me a text after one class? She said that she and one other girl, who was also a freshman, Were the only two that would engage the professor they were the only two that would have conversation answer questions pose ideas for three hours freshmen to seniors she said the professor had moved her chair over at some point between breaks pretty much to have the discussion in front of them for the three hours talking about everything and she knew very quickly that part of where where part of that came from was her education in the Christian classical world And I say that to you because we often don't see the most fruit until they're out of this. And many of you here have your kids in this school, and I will tell you, it is worth the investment. And it's not just money, the time, the energy, understanding why we read the Odyssey or the Iliad. Why do we do thesis that we think will make our children's heads blow up in senior year? I mean, it's that sort of stuff, but it prepares our children to thrive majorly at the next level. I have that with both of my kids. My son had the same experience, and I know hundreds of stories like this from students that I deal with. And I tell you that also because a little bit tougher form of education also lines up well with healthy parenting. And that's a lot of what we're gonna talk about tonight. So where are we with parenting? Well, I, I was on a plane about two years ago leaving Dallas And this will give you a snapshot of where we are with parenting today, I think. And I I get on the plane, I sit down, and I notice these guys get on the plane, and they're built like my son, who's a collegiate athlete. They look like all collegiate athletes, or maybe a hair older. You just know an athlete when you see it. They are lean. I mean, every, every movement, you see muscles twitching, and these guys get on the plane carrying these duffel bags, and I'm thinking, wonder who they play for? So this little guy gets on behind him, and he's telling him where to go and stuff, and he plops down beside me. And I'm thinking, okay, you know. Plane takes off, he opens his laptop, and has anybody here ever seen the movie Moneyball? You know what that's about, baseball analytics? He was a baseball scout. And so he's on the plane looking at player analytics, and what player analytics are, if you do not know, they look at everything. How many times you spit before you hit the ball? How many times you step out of the batter's box? I mean, it's unbelievable the things they track to figure out what's gonna help you in your performance. And so this guy is doing that. I'm like, this is awesome. I've got a three-hour plane ride beside this guy. So, sidebar, a good friend of mine who travels the world for years has always told me, do not tell anybody on a plane what you do. I'm like, why? He's like, you will be giving away a free counseling session. I'm like, well, what the heck do I tell him? He said, tell him you're a mortician. Because then if if that sparked a conversation, it would be a really interesting conversation. And so, just keep that in the back of your head. So I, I asked this guy, I'm like, man, what do you, what do you do? He's like, oh, I'm a you know, pro baseball scout, you know, MLB scout. And I said, no way. He said, yeah, I'm taking these players for a tryout somewhere. And, and I said, well, show me what you're doing. And so we talked for an hour about all the analytics and stuff. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. So he, we get done. He finally turns to me and says, so what do you do for a living? Well, I couldn't pull out mortician now, right? And so I said, well, I said, uh, I run a mental health clinic and I also consult uh, nationally on parenting. And he goes, oh my gosh! I'm like, what? He goes, you would not believe the young adults we deal with today. I said, what do you mean? He said, he was an older guy. He said, it used to be, we would have guys that would work four jobs, live in a van by the river, Eating ramen noodles for a chance to play in Major League Baseball. He said today, they're bigger, stronger, faster. They are better athletes, the best athletes we have ever seen. And I have to babysit them. Because they don't know how to function in this world. What a snapshot. And it's interesting because it matches statistics we know. We know in virtually every category in the mental health world that our children today, I'll just give you two, they are the most anxious and depressed children we've ever seen walking the earth, by far. I'll give you a quick uh, way to think about that. Um, Psychiatric medication can be a great thing, can be a life-saving tool, absolutely. We definitely over-prescribe that. And so if we think of children, this is pre-pandemic. In the U.S., children, which is anyone under the age of 18, we had roughly 8 million children on psych meds. Under the age of six, about 1.5 million. Under the age of one, like these up here, under the age of one, about 350,000 on psych meds in the U.S. Prior to 1950, how many children in the U.S. run psychiatric meds? Anybody know? Zero. The first funded research in the U.S. for psychopharmacology in children was in the mid-60s we can say pretty confidently that we didn't have children prior to the fifties on psych meds. And it really, the only meds we had back then were major tranquilizers like Thorazine. I joked with the teachers, we all know a kid that we would want to put on Thorazine, but we didn't, I promise. Prior to 1950, before we had any medication whatsoever, every record we can look at, we had the lowest levels of anxiety and depression among children. Now, some people will say, well, you know, we just didn't know what we were looking for. We didn't know what it looks like. Actually, we do. We have records all the way back to the early 1900s on on anxiety and depression in kids. And, And if we had missed a group, the phantom cohort, by definition of severe anxiety and depression, they would have only gotten worse. And at some point, that cohort would pop out, you know, and they're older. We've never seen that happen. We can't identify a missing phantom cohort. So we know when life was harder, our children were actually healthier in the mental health world. And that's kind of crazy. And that's a lot of what I talked with your students about today. Let me, let me ask this question and you all can chime in. What did you hear from your students today? I'd love to know. Anything? Anything stick out to you? Now everybody's quiet. What, tell me what you mean. More responsibility. All right? Anybody else? Stop, funny, I didn't tell them to stop complaining, but okay, we talked about complaining. Well, yeah, I told them a story about my son. Anything else? Did your students say that they enjoyed the talk? I told them how depressed and anxious they were. Why on earth would they enjoy that talk? But we talked about their generation and, and when I talk to students, I ask them to really think about who they are in their generation, that their current generation is the most depressed and anxious we've ever seen. And they pretty much agreed. Actually, one of the exercises I do with students, and I do it everywhere I go, I say, give me one word answers. How does our current culture view you? We heard entitled, technology addicted, lazy. That's horrible. And then I said, how many of you agree that pretty much defines your generation? They all raise their hands. That's how they view themselves. That's their self-concept. So how have we gotten there? Well, let me take a, a quick walk through psychology. The idea of psychology is nothing new. Um, you, you know, many of the books your children read in the school, the classics, uh, have psychological things going on in them. The Roman and Greek gods are psychological archetypes, personalities, temperaments. Uh, we've always tried to figure out why we think the way we do and why we do what we do. Uh, there a couple big theories over time that we had, I, you would be a great candidate with me for phrenology, uh, the belief that used to be we could study the bumps on the head to figure out your personality. You know, I'm like a perfect specimen, you are too. Um, they'd make money on us. Uh, and then of course we've had the idea that personality was really shaped by the four humors, the, 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 fluids in your body makes sense. If I'm filled with bile, I'd be angry all day too. You know, I mean, we've always tried to figure out why do we do what we do? How do we function this way? But something changed in the, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s with the idea of therapy. It really didn't exist before then. But the person who pretty much invented it was Sigmund Freud. Now, we don't have to pick on Freud too much. Does anybody know anything about Freud? What do you know about Freud? Tell me. He is weird, very weird. Yes. Anybody want to offer anything else? Well, he, yeah, his model, of, his model of development was psychosexual, and it related to his mother quite a bit. Um, we In the world of psychology, we have disproven all of the therapeutic interventions of Freud. I mean, we, we research-wise have disproven all of the different ideas that Freud had as nonsense. Freud did kick off the field, and a lot of psychology is developed in response or reaction to Freud. And, and Freud was very intelligent and, a, and a really a thinker. He was just wrong. And a lot of people, if I go to conferences today in my field, a lot of people will say, well, we don't believe in that Freud stuff anymore. But the funny thing is, Freud, began an idea that psychology has never gotten rid of that infects what we do and it affects us as parents. And it's what I call the therapeutic mindset. Let me walk you through it pretty quickly. We'll talk about how it affects parenting. Um, Freud said, if you have a problem, where did it come from? Childhood, parents. Which parent? Your mom. Freud invented mom guilt. All the women are laughing, all the dads are like, mom guilt? What's mom guilt? Guys, let me clue you in. This is mom guilt. This is mom guilt. I gave this example to the teachers earlier today. You have two young moms, they have two little kids like this, a little bit older. And they think, oh my gosh, we finally can take our kids together to the park. And and we're like all psyched about it. You know, they're like fixing charcuterie trays and, and all kinds of cool desserts to share. They go to the park. They take their two little cherubs, AKA criminals, and put them in the sandbox before their butts are on the bench and they have, they've taken the saran wrap off of the charcuterie tray. What has happened? One child is banging another's off the slide. The other kid's force feeding sand in the mouth of the other. And here's what happens there's a bunch of moms going, Yep, been there. The two moms grab their kids go away to their cars to leave apologizing to one another like it's their fault. Freud made you think that. Folks, I can take a young child, four months, five months, six months old, and I can pick them up knowing they've never seen violence, never been exposed to violence of any sort whatsoever. I can pick them up when they don't want to be picked up and they will smack me in the side of the head. Where did that come from? that's called brokenness you didn't cause that but freud was a determinist freud said any problem you have today came from your childhood in essence it's not your fault i call that nobility of victimhood it's never our fault do we not see that in culture today the next thing freud said was this not only did your problems come from history? But the only way you can solve them is by going back into yourself to find your truth. In other words, Freud severed the idea of transcendent truth. Transcendent, objective truth to Freud did not exist. He said all truth is subjective. That's I could say to you, you're offensive because I feel offended. Is that not the world we live in today? That's the world of subjective reality and subjective truth third thing freud said which is part of the therapeutic mindset is that not only do you have to go on this journey to figure out your truth it takes an expert to get you there voila my profession is that not what we see because the therapeutic world of psychology quite a bit has gone down the road of convincing us as parents that we don't know how to raise children that we don't know what we're doing an example is if we sever transcendent truth then we're severing generational wisdom. Because if there is no transcendent objective truth, then anyone who went before me has nothing to offer. Now, think about that. Generational wisdom has historically taken three forms. So, if my grandmother had a problem with one of her children, who would she go talk to? Who would she go talk to? Raise your hand. Her mom, a parent, someone else in her family, someone else who has raised a kid she liked someone who made it through the process and raised a good citizen my grandmother would want generational wisdom of parenting from someone who had lived it that's one source what's the second source of, of generational wisdom in parenting the church the pastor ought to know what God says about raising kids we talk to our pastor third source generational wisdom what is it Teachers. I told the teachers and they all laughed because I, I know because they're, they're treated more like the complaint department at the DMV. But uh, teachers used to be a source of wisdom. Can I give you a great example of that? It used to happen all the time. Mom or dad would bring the third grader into school, start doing something different. And they'd, they'd say to the third grade teacher, could you please watch Johnny? He started doing this and we're not sure what's wrong. We think maybe something's up. Could you please watch and let me know what you see? their great teacher leans back and goes they all do that and the parent goes because development is messy right and if you've taught or had kids you know that but see when we sever generational wisdom we start looking now for an expert so people today have a problem with their child what do they do they start googling people with my credentials If I had a problem, if my grandparents were still alive today, and I had a problem with one of my kids, and I said, yeah, I'm going to go take them to talk to a counselor, either of my grandmothers, they'd say, well, do you know that counselor? I'd say, no. Do you know if that counselor has kids? No. Shouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to know how they turned out? My grandmother would immediately be going to generational, demonstrated, experiential, lived wisdom. But that's not what we do today because part of that therapeutic mindset is that we've convinced you only an expert knows how to raise your kids. Now, Freud didn't write any books, thank goodness for parents, because they'd have been really weird. Um, The first books that really started coming at parents were primarily the behaviorists and the behaviorists are the ones that basically said we can maneuver reward and consequence, reward and punishment, and generate any outcome we want. I'm not sure they met children. But they started selling us books and the books were use this chart use this token system use this checklist use it in your home and you will raise your child how many people in here have used a token system or charter checklist like that in your home raise your hand leave your hand up if you're still using the first one you started with what's wrong i thought this was science most parents would get three books before they give up feel like total failures And if it didn't work, let me give you an example of it not working. Let me give you an example of why it doesn't work. A little kid comes to me, referred from a large public school counseling office, guidance counselor, I told the story to teachers. And he was a fourth grader, and he could not go in the school without smacking kids. Fourth graders do that. He was a little excessive. So in the school, they had a uh, a school counselor that was a strong behaviorist, also humanist, and we'll get to that in a minute. And she said, not a problem. We can handle this. We're going to apply behavioral principles. And because I'm humanistic, we're going to apply the nice ones. So we're going to reward him out of this. What did that mean? Well, every time he smacked somebody, they would confront him. If he made it right, apologized, corrected the behavior in the moment, he got a ticket. The teacher had a spool of carnival tickets when kids did exceptional things in the room. She, they'd get a ticket at the end of the week, they could use tickets and get like an eraser, a pencil out of the prize box, pretty normal thing. What do you think happened? When he came to me, the information from the teacher was she went through her entire spool of carnival tickets in no time. He had cleaned out the box for the year in like three weeks. He couldn't go in the building without smacking people. He finally came to me because he smacked a spoon out of a cafeteria worker's hand. So now they thought he was overly aggressive. He comes to my office, fourth grader. He comes in, sits down. He knows I know the whole scoop. And I just say, hey man, what's going on? And he leans forward and looks around like people are listening. And he goes, they give me stuff. Behaviorism meets a free will criminal child. That's what always happens. They work the system. Behaviorism is good for moving small things in a small direction for a small amount of time. That's why it is perfect for two scenarios that we use all the time. Classroom behavior management, we're only trying to maneuver something small in a small direction for a small amount of time, and prison system. I know, sounds funny, we confuse the two sometimes. But the idea is when we have a captive audience in a semi-closed or closed environment, behavioral strategies work for a small amount of time to move small things in a small direction. A family is an open environment. We cannot control outcome. So what the behaviorists did in selling us all these books convinced us that we really don't know what we're doing. And the dirty little thing, dirty little secret, is when we would fail at applying the strategies, what would the behaviorists tell us? We weren't consistent. I'm sorry. I am not going to be consistent all the time. I'm a broken person too. But that's the message behaviorists would pitch to us is, well, my system didn't work because you weren't consistent. Okay, wait a minute, what about the other four systems I tried? And it left us, we had such a beat up parent population that when we hit the 80s, we were ready for the humanistic movement. And the humanistic movement in psychology said, it's all about keeping your kids happy. It's the false self-esteem movement. We were ready because we thought we were toast. And now all we gotta do is keep them happy. We can do that. And so we started giving plastic trophies for everything. We started giving ribbons for everything, for for showing up. Heck, the kids that didn't show up, if they were on the list, we'd mail them the ribbon. We've had a good 30 years of research now, if not more on on the self-esteem movement. Here's what we know. When we overinflate self esteem, we lower regard for others. Think about that. When we overinflate self esteem, we make it hard for our kids to even think about their neighbors because they're consumed with self, self esteem, pride in self. That's what we've been doing for quite a while. And, and let me give you an example of that backfiring. So we, we have. Two other things we've learned. When we overinflate self-esteem, we increase anxiety and we increase depression in children. Both are very sad. I see it in my office all the time. I'll have a a little kid come in who says, I don't think my parents get me. That's a pretty tough thing for a kid to say. And I said, what do you mean? Well, I'm like horrible at soccer, but they keep giving me big trophies and my parents keep acting like I'm a great soccer player because I get trophies. Parents have bought into the fake self esteem stuff. And this kid is coming in my office and they're depressed. They think their parents don't know who they are. Or the other child that comes in who has always gotten trophies for everything and his parents get so excited about him getting trophies and awards, every time a new event starts, he's worried he won't get one and please his parents. And he's anxious. Now, we do have one percenters that figure out it's a scam. I'll tell you a quick story. We'll call this kid Jimmy. Um, he moved to Roanoke. Roanoke's right between Blue Ridge and Appalachian Mountains. We're a mountain valley town. He moved from New York City, grew up in the Bronx. He was a little kid. He was a fifth grader when he came to Roanoke. And he looked like a little miniature Joe Pesci. He even had a funky hat. I mean, I mean he sounded like he was out of uh, The Godfather. And he was like, fifth grader. But he talked like he would you know, rub you out or something. And uh, so his parents brought him to me to acclimate to Roanoke. He was fine. We met a couple times, great kid, great coping skills, very social, he was fine. A year goes by, he's now in sixth grade. The dad calls me and says, we gotta gotta bring Jimmy in. And I'm like, Jimmy was a cool kid. Why why you gotta bring him in? We found his baseball trophy broken up in a hundred pieces. Well, okay, that gets my attention. That was a pretty intentional act. So he brings Jimmy in. I go out, and I'm like, hey, Jimmy. He's like, hey, Doc." I said, well, why don't you come on back and talk to me? So he comes in my office, and he sits down. And I said, Jimmy, I said, you know, uh, your dad told me, he called me and told me, well, I said, do you know why you're here? He said, I, don't, I have no idea why I'm here. I said, well, your dad called and told me that he found your baseball trophy broken up on hundred pieces. You know, what gives? And he went, we were horrible. I hate baseball. We had... Our pitcher hit a coach that was sitting in his own dugout. We had a kid leave in the middle of the game one time. We got beat by everybody and I hate baseball. We got done with the season. They gave me a trophy that no joke is as tall as I am. My parents were so stoked that my mom got a little wooden shelf that my dad put on my bedroom wall and my mom put the trophy on it. Every morning I wake up, I'm reminded how much I hate baseball. Because this trophy is right there. It's the only trophy I've ever gotten. And he said, so I hid it. And they found it and put it back. So I hid it in the basement and they found it and put it back. So I figured they will not glue it back together. So I went and got a hammer and busted it up in as many pieces as I possibly could. He was the one percenter. He knew it was, a, he, he was wondering why his parents were so dumb. You know, I went out and talked to the dad. I'm like, he is great. You know, And then explained it to the dad. Folks, the self-esteem movement has distorted how our children look at life. And it's created this notion that how they feel is the most important part of who they are. So think about what the movement in a lot of psychology. Great people in my profession, but there's a lot of people that buy into the therapeutic mindset. Let's walk through several pieces of it. Again, deterministic victimhood. Our past determines who we are. The second is that we've got to go find our truth. There's no transcendent truth. The third is it takes an expert. Got to have somebody like me to tell you how to live your life. The third is, or fourth is, we've gone through several models of the family. We've gone from kind of an old school version where we're a benevolent dictatorship. I love you, but I absolutely will tell you what you're doing. And we've moved to the democratic family. And the democratic family is came out of the self-esteem movement, that notion of every child has a voice, doesn't mean we should be hearing it on every decision though, but it gave that notion that we should. And we're now in the therapeutic model of the family where the child seat is elevated and our job is the court jester to keep them constantly happy. Because out of the humanistic movement, what we have pitched in psychology is this idea that it's all about your child being happy. I asked the students today, I said, would you all agree that culture says it's all about being happy? And they all said yes. And I said, would you agree that the notion that you should always follow your feelings, your feelings are your compass to life, that that is the message you hear in culture? They were like, absolutely. Well, great, unless that's flawed. So let's talk about that for a second. I told the students the story this morning and had them kind of respond to it. I'll do the same with you all. Imagine you go to New York City. Anybody ever been to South Bronx? Yeah, it's the most dangerous part of New York City. New York City, one of the most dangerous cities in in the nation. South Bronx, most dangerous part of New York City. So imagine you go visit a friend, lives in Manhattan. And your friend says, we're going to go to this great restaurant in South Bronx. It was on diners, drive-ins, and dives. Guy Fieri says, it's off the hook. We're going. You take the subway. You go to South Bronx. You eat dinner. It's fabulous. It's now dark. It's night. Time to go back to the subway station. And you're getting ready to leave, and you say, hold up, I gotta go to the restroom. You go to the bathroom, you come back, and your friend's gone. You're like, I got ditched. And so the person at the door says, oh, they told me to catch you. They said they're gonna walk slowly, out, down the block, around the subway station. You can catch up. You think, okay, you know what? I'm gonna go out, hang a left, and cut through the alley. Cut the corner and catch up. So here you are. Tooling through the dark alley in the middle of the night, as I told the students, wearing your new covenant hoodie, looking sharp, and a bunch of guys running the alley after you. How would you feel? Scared. I had students going terrified, but you'd be scared. Now imagine you're home in bed, in your own home in your own bed, and you dream the same scenario. How would you feel in the dream? Same way? Yeah, you really would. Now imagine you're home and you're watching a scary movie. And the music's going and it's dark. Woo! And you knew better. I got you twice today. How'd you just feel? Fright. Good heavens. You knew that was coming. Okay. So. If you're really in the first example and you're in that alley in that situation, are you in danger? Yes. When you're laying in bed dreaming, are you actually in danger? No. When you're watching a scary movie, can anything on that screen actually hurt you? No. Our feelings cannot tell the difference between fantasy and reality. Our feelings do not discern truth. I said that this morning, an entire row of older girls went, and they started writing it down. We have told our children growing up that it's all about how they feel rather than how they live, and we're giving them a broken compass because feelings do not discern truth. So if we tell our children it's all about a feeling state and you use your feelings to get there, we're giving them a broken compass and dropping them off in the Appalachian Mountains near where I live. It will only get worse. It's the young girl who came in to see me and said, can you help me feel better? I said, I have no idea. And she said, what? That's your job. My last three therapists told me they could help me feel better. I'm like, okay, let's back that up a little bit. What happened? She said, well, they kept telling me if I did that, I'd feel better. If I did that, I'd feel better. If I did that, I'd feel better. It was all focused on helping her feel better as if the entire goal of psychology is to remove a negative feeling. Trust me, that's part of the problem we have in psychology. And I said to her, I said, darling, I I have no idea if I can help you feel better, but my focus is helping you learn to live better. And in my experience over time, by learning to live better and function differently, we often soften the most troubling feelings. But that's not what we're doing with our kids. The next thing we've done, not only overinflated the value of emotions, because we're telling everybody how you feel is the most important part of who you are, it goes back to that you're offensive because I feel offended, right? Maybe I'm just dumb. Maybe you're the nicest guy in the world, but if my feelings tell me that, I'm supposed to trust my feelings. The other thing we've done is we have, in essence, removed the idea of healthy struggle out of the lives of our children. See, it used to be, as soon as a child demonstrated a functional ability, we gave them a reason to use it. As soon as they could grab Kinlan, they were on the Kinlan crew. As soon as they were stronger, they carried firewood. As soon as they could reach a the sink, they did dishes. As soon as they could reach the head of a horse, they put a harness on, and soon after learned to ride it. We met them as God built them to function in development. Well, we don't do that anymore. Let me give you a, a, a picture to think about this, to show you a change. Anybody here know the show Little House on the Prairie? 1880s 1890s Minnesota. Um, that, much like the Waltons, much like Andy Griffith, are period pieces where we, they used historians. To make sure lifestyle depicted was accurate, so even if the story was made up or an elaboration, the lifestyle you saw depicted was accurate to the time. So, do you have the picture of Little House on the Prairie in your mind? Okay, what was a typical 13-year-old girl doing? She wasn't married yet. What was she doing? Speak up. Chores, cooking. Cooking. If you want a chicken sandwich today, where do you go? Christian Classical Answers, Chick Fil A. Probably an owner-operator in the room, is there? No? Yes? No, is there one? Hey, where? Is there another operator here? No, okay, usually there is. Um, Chick-fil-A! If you wanted a chicken sandwich in 1880, 1890, what had to happen? You had to kill a chicken, and guess what? It got worse for a while there, right? We actually had 13-year-old young women doing things like that all the time. We have historical record of that. What do we know from historical record? Use the show as a reference point, but historical record... What did a 13-year-old young man know how to do at the turn of the century? What did he know how to do? Shoot, hunt, what else? Farm, plant, harvest, walk behind a plowshare and a team of ox. I tried that one time, but it killed me. It's hard to do. Had already helped build multiple homes in their community, and we don't let our 13-year-olds boil water now think about that it relates to identity formation identity formation there are three key questions in identity formation the first is am i valuable do i have meaning do i have value as i stand here today before i ever do anything am i valuable the second question is am i capable can i do can i do sixth grade can I, do th- can I do third grade? I heard that's when it gets real. You know, kids are, yeah, I heard third grade. That's when it gets real. All the third graders think fourth grade's when it gets real. But we wonder, can I do it? Can I function in this world? And the third question is, am I a member? Am I a valuable part of a community? Do I belong to something larger than myself? Those are identity formation questions we all have to answer. So I want to apply that to the young man from 1880, 1890. Did he know he was valuable? Yeah, people relied on him. Did he know he was capable? Yeah, because he was required to learn and to be useful. Did he know he was a valuable part of something larger than himself? Yeah, he knew he was a part of his community. Our 13-year-olds today do not have the raw material to answer the questions. Because we have effectively removed ownership of life from their life. And see, that's a problem. I see so many young adults in their 20s today that are lost and depressed because they have no sense of identity. Now, you may be thinking, well, those are practical questions. That's right. At a young age, when we onboard our children to life, they can answer those questions practically and it builds a scaffolding so that as they grow spiritually, they know where to hang the spiritual understanding of each one of those. When we don't have that foundation, they struggle more with understanding their value in a spiritual way. I'll give you a great example. Um, I had a guy come see me recently. He, he was identified early in life as a prodigy, so he was taking care of his entire life. He's in his 50, uh, 40s now, multimillionaire, family, couple kids, depressed and suicidal. And he comes to see me, tells me about his life, And once he was identified very early as a child prodigy in this certain discipline, he was taken care of. Everything was done for him. And so we get done with the first session, and he says to me, well, so what do you think I need to do? I said, I need you to cook dinner for your family this week. And he went, did you hear anything I said to you? I said, oh, yeah, I heard it all. And he went, you want me to cook dinner? And I said, you don't know how to do it, do you? And he went, no. I said, I want you to go cook dinner for your family this week. Think about the identity formation questions. He comes back in, he sits down in my office a week later, and I said, what'd you learn? Well, first I said, did you cook dinner? He went, yeah. I said, what'd you learn? He said, I didn't realize how much of a burden I was to my wife. And I'm a horrible cook. And did you know you can't walk away from stuff when you're cooking it? You know? So I can envision his house, when the smoke alarm goes off, all the kids are like, dinner's ready, and dad's cooking. You know, This guy in one week of being useful began to challenge his perspective. He was hysterical after that. He, he would come in He'd be like, hey, what are we going to do now? And, and so, I mean, we just lit him up in being practically useful to his family, totally changed his perspective. We never talked about suicidality again. But see, that's what we're not doing with our kids. Again, it used to be as soon as the child demonstrated a functional ability, we gave them a reason to use it. When do children demonstrate functional ability? At what age? Two, the age of two. Yet we have students graduating from college that are not functionally capable today. I'll tell you a funny story about my son. Uh, My son is also an Eagle Scout. And so if you're familiar with scouting, I mean, they're just required to be functional. And so he goes to college and sophomore year, he moves out with three other guys on the triathlon team. And one week goes by of them living together on their own, not in a college dorm. And these three guys bring him a set of coasters to give to him as a gift. And it says dad on it. He calls me laughing. I'm like, dude, why did they give you that? He goes, well, I told him how to do, how to cook. I told him how to use spices. And I stopped him. I said, you don't know how to cook. He goes, they don't know that. (laughs) He goes, I've seen it enough. He can cook. Yeah, but in scouts, everything that boys cook has dirt in it, though. So, you know. He's like, I told him how to do laundry. I said, it's on the lid of the machine. He goes, I know. They don't know that. I mean, guys, do you know that? It's on the lid, the instructions. You know. I mean, it's amazing when someone just practically functional shows up. It stands out. Yet the majority of our children today are not raised practically functional. And it's necessary because what's our target in parenting? Now, psychology would say our target is perfectly behaved children, which is not going to happen. Or psychology, humanism would tell us that the goal is that they're always happy, which is not possible. What's our true goal? Well, our goal is maturity. And you might be thinking, duh. Let me give you a definition of maturity. Maturity is simply this, the ability to do what is right, what is good, what is good judgment, what is common sense when it's harder I don't want to do it the ability to live as I should when it's difficult it's impossible for children to learn to do that unless they have struggled when they're younger think about what scripture says to us and I will definitely generalize this in Genesis God creates Adam says be in relationship with me Adam is lonely he doesn't give him 10 friends he gives him a wife And he says the two of you become one. C.S. Lewis uses the analogy of a bow and a fiddle becoming one instrument, reaching its full purpose. I use a medical analogy of a skin graft. Two pieces of flesh growing to be one piece of flesh. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to take a break from that relationship. Then God gives them everything in creation to enjoy, to manage, to learn, to participate with, to care for. He didn't just give them a piece, he gave them all of it. He called Adam and Eve to be a jack of all trades of his kingdom. All of it. Don't figure out your one niche. And then he said, now raise up your replacements. He's calling them in Genesis to begin onboarding children as soon as they're capable based on how I've designed them. That capability typically starts around the age of two. The average student today graduates high school with no formal chores. Stats from the Kaiser Foundation. That's crazy. We've eliminated that. Parents ask me all the time, What's my favorite verse in parenting? I say, If a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. (laughs) Actually, my number two. Um, And it's really the the sausage making verse, the process verse of parenting in Scripture is not one most people think of. But it's the beginning of the book of James. And I'm going to paraphrase Consider pure joy whenever we face trials, it develops perseverance. Perseverance is the ability to put stick up with something you know, put up with something that's hard. And perseverance must finish its work so that we are, depending on translation, mature or complete. Let me change the wording. Healthy struggle is the engine to growth and maturity. When we make the path soft, we prepare our children for nothing. And that's what we've been doing culturally, driven by my profession quite a bit. We've been making the world soft because we want them to be happy and we're pretty much guaranteeing their misery in adulthood. And I see that all the time. And so, <clears throat> how do we do it differently? And if you're, if you're doubting the whole notion of children being functional at the age of two, I'll tell you two quick stories. A friend of mine is an expert on South Africa and he has gone and lived with different tribes in South Africa. A few years ago, he was living with a tribe out in the middle of nowhere. And he noticed this little kid that was always with the livestock. And he had a really long stick sharpened on one end. Livestock is the lifeblood of the village. So he asked one of the elders, he said, can you tell me about this kid? What is he doing? And the elder said, he's guarding the livestock from wild animals. And my friend said, how old is he? "Eh, Five, four. And my friend said, why do you have a four or five year old guarding the livestock? And the elder said, because four or five-year-olds are really good at poking things with sharp sticks. (laughs) True story. And he then added, we've never lost one. And when he's bigger, he will be doing things the bigger kids do. I'm in Fort Worth three years ago, speaking to a group like this. Back of the room, this guy's laughing and nodding the whole time. Dirty, head to toe, looked like he was in his 80s. I'm like, he's lost. I'm not sure why he's here. He was a grandfather of a kid in the school. We get done. He comes up afterwards. He goes, I got to tell you a story. I got to tell you a story. I'm like, okay. He goes, when we were little kids, I'm like, how old? He goes, seven, eight. I was told several times a year to go round up all my buddies, and we were all paid a nickel. I said, to do what? He said, to stand where there was no fencing when we were rounding up the long horn steer. Our job was to hold hands and go, whoop, whoop, whoop. I'm like, where was Child Protective Services in Fort Worth? mean, okay. We have story after story after story after story after story that when we allow our children to actually own pieces of life, they thrive. Think about this, a continuum. On one end is consumer, on the other end is contributor. Where would you put your kid? Where would you put your kid? We know from historical record they can be primary contributors by 13. Whew. So if we're going to do it a little differently, how would we do it? If we don't... I told the students today, do you really want to be these horrible statistics? So we talked about how they could live a little differently. Well, I'm going to challenge you all in the same way. If you want to do this a little differently, what can you think of to help you navigate this? I'm going to give you four things. How do we begin to expose our children to... A better way of raising them and trust me some of you a lot of you on here you're doing pieces of this already I don't think I've told you anything yet you don't know except the dumb stories this stuff's not strange to you you just you just haven't connected it in your parenting so I'm gonna give you four things the very first thing is boundaries I do not mean the psychological boundary discussion I mean a property boundary Inside of it is the word yes, all the things you have claimed in your family are good and healthy and you will allow your children to do, and outside is the word no. This forces you as a parent to actually look at the nature of things. Nothing is neutral. What does it bring us? What does it cost us? This forces you to figure out things like video games, cell phones, use of technology, sleepovers. What's wrong with a sleepover? 30 years ago, maybe nothing. Statistically today, it's the first introduction. Often of inappropriate sexual contact and substance use among grammar school students, sleepovers off the list. It forces you to make these decisions because this is where you begin giving your child a family identity because they get to grow up here and things like, nope, we don't do that around here, but we do do that. We cannot be parents who only say no. We've got to say yes to big things in life. My son was in grammar school and he was picked on, if you knew my son, he's, he's huge. We nicknamed him man-child when he was little because he was huge. So this kid was smarting off at him in grammar school and said, yeah, you don't even have video games at your house. And my son said, yeah, but we shoot guns and blow stuff up because my, my children, when they turned five, they learned two life skills to shoot and play poker. And they're really good at poker. And if you beat them, they'll shoot you. But no. I mean, and my son started having birthday parties at our hunt camp in the mountains, this, this old homestead that was built in the 1800s. We would go up every year, starting with his fifth birthday. We'd invite all these boys up. We'd send a postcard through the mail because we didn't know better that said, We're going to. My wife used to say things. My wife put this, I'm sorry, we will burp and do other things and be real men up there. So I won't. Yeah. She put on a postcard and we're gonna shoot guns and play poker and all that. And we sent it through the US mail on a postcard. I tell my wife, I said, we're lucky we didn't get arrested. But it said on there, you will, when you come, you will either catch or kill your dinner to five-year-olds. So we went squirrel hunting and trout fishing. Squirrels have never been safer. But they all learned to trout fish and to gut fish and to cook fish over an open fire. And these guys, one of the times we had to remove a building, and it was all rotten, so we decided we had a bunch of little boys up there They were five or six years old. We're going to blow it up. We have no electricity, so they used an old pumper, you know, that sends the charge, kind of like old phones you had to crank. And when you get five or six little five or six-year-old boys that get to hit that plunger and blow a building 100 feet in the air, I mean, they're sprouting hair. They're like walking around. I still today know that some of these boys have pieces of what we blew up that they have kept. Because it was, I mean, they became men when we did that. But we, we give them life. We give them big things. Trust me, the physical world of God's creation will always outmatch technology and the goofy stuff we do today. So we've got to declare what's healthy and what's unhealthy. It really forces us. Because if you've ever heard this adage, once the camel gets his nose under the tent, at some point, you're going to get the whole camel. Right? So we've really got to look at what we're letting under that tent now. Because once you get the whole camel, you only have two choices. Live with all the excrement the camel's gonna provide, and it will, or you have to kill the camel, and that's usually pretty tough. So the first thing is really declaring, who are we? How are we identified? And we're identified by what we say yes to and what we say no to. The next question, uh, or, or the next thing to look at is, do less and require more of your kids? This is where the rubber meets the road. Here's the question I will ask you. I asked this all over the country for the last 10 years. What do you do for the functioning and upkeep of your home that your children cannot do unless limited by development or strength? Can you think of anything? I've had one answer in 10 years. And the poor guy, his wife was like, shut up, shut up. He said, pay the bills. And I said, well, if they understand math and you teach them bill pay, they'll pay bills and order stuff off Amazon. She started laughing. She said, he already orders stuff off Amazon. Folks, think about what I just asked you. Why are we not giving more to our children than to own? Why are we not requiring more of them? Because it's messier and takes longer, right? True leadership is sacrificial. Parenting is true leadership. It's sacrificial in that our leadership is to the benefit of those we lead. Our sacrifices that we put up with the messiness and the length of time to teach it. That's the number one reason we don't do that today. And, well, the number two reason. Number one reason is we're fearful because we think our children are going to get hurt or we're going to break them or whatever. I mean, I'm sorry, folks. The best way to learn to check branches when you climb a tree is by first not checking. Then you will always check from that point on. We're, we're, we're bubble wrapping our kids. So we need to start thinking, do less, require more. Let me give you two pieces of that. The first piece is what I call basic life support. Food, clothing, and shelter. Your children, as soon as they're functionally able, around the age of two, should be part of the food, clothing, and shelter process. Learning to tie their shoes. Putting their own stinking pants on. You know, don't buy your kids pants with 14 buttons. Zipper. I mean, think realistic. It's going to be their job. They may not cook the dinner, but they can get stuff out of the fridge. If you're worrying about them chopping their finger, go on Amazon. Order a fisherman's fillet glove. You cannot cut through it with a butcher knife. Trust me, I've tried. Begin giving your children the things. Give them responsibility for food, clothing, and shelter in some way. As soon as they're doing that decently, the next step is you're now contributing to the overall functioning of the family you're going to start taking over responsibilities around you. And the funny thing is, the earlier in life we give children responsibility, the more strongly they take to it. I mean, they clean a toilet. They're like, yeah, did you see that? Look at that toilet. It's never been so clean. I mean, it's amazing. It's pride in a job well done. We want that in our kids. Third category, connect cause and effect. Cause and effect is the basic... uh, Basic learning process of childhood. Now, you may be thinking, wait a minute. You said that whole reward and consequence thing was garbage. Are you just changing the words? No. Let me give you three characteristics of cause and effect. Number one, it puts life in order. How many of you have grammar school students? Raise your hand. We're going to rock their world. This is a simple version of cause and effect for a grammar school student. Student comes home after school. Hey, how was your day? Great. Um, we don't care when you do your homework because we can't force you to do it. You know, usually it's, do your homework, do your homework, do your homework, do your homework. We don't care when you do your homework, but you can't do anything else that we do control. In the world of a grammar school student, we control about everything. You can't do anything else until your homework's done. Oh, you need to lay there and scream a while? It's okay, I've heard it's good for the lungs. You wanna go outside and yell at trees? Do it, not a problem. Here's the key. You have to mean what you say. You should be slow to set a boundary, but you need to mean what you say. We mess this up all the time. You're grounded to your 30. Folks, that means they live with you when they're 30. We don't want that. So you've got to make sure there are no sacred cows. It doesn't matter how much you paid for piano. It doesn't matter what travel team they're on. I'll tell you a quick story. Mom comes in to see me. She says, I've been, you know, I've been dying to come and see you. I need help with my son. He was a fifth grader. I said, what's going on? She said, well, I'm taking him to soccer and he's yelling, screaming and cussing at me the whole way okay she said i'm pulling into the field i said whoa she goes i haven't told you the problem yet i said yeah you did you were still going to soccer practice and she said well he's the star goalie i said he's fifth grade i said i don't care if he's the pope i I, she said well the coach will be mad i said i have no i could, could care less about the coach i said look here's the cool thing you don't have to work with me but i also don't have to work with you if you want to work with me he's not going to soccer again until we resolve this issue. She said, well, that coach is going to be so mad. I said, tell the coach to call me. Well, the next Monday at that time, I had a retired home ec teacher as my front office staff. Best, I mean, she'll cut you. I mean, <laughs> think about it, retired home ec teacher from a massive public school, nothing's going to walk in there that she's not going to be like, we'll be with you in a minute, and have a seat. I mean, so she rings my phone. She goes, well, you've done it again. I said, what, what did I do, Betty? She said, I don't even know. I think he's a coach of something, but he wouldn't stop talking. I just put him on hold and talk to him. I'm like, that's why I hire you. So I pick up. This coach goes off. How dare you tell my par- these parents not to bring their kids to practice? We're a so-and-so travel team. We're at this elite level. We're teaching a team concept and sportsmanship. And he, he just goes on. Finally, he stops talking. I said, Coach, I just got a question for you. What's more important, for him to learn to be a contributing member of your team or for him first to learn to be a contributing member of his family? Bam! He slammed the phone down. Mom said after that, he never said another word. Once he heard it, he understood. But see, we messed that up. The training ground for our children is home first, extracurriculars after. I love athletics. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute because it relates to something most we're going to talk about. So the cause and effect puts it in order so you can't do anything until your homework's finished they need to scream and cry for a while we're not going to the birthday party we're not doing anything until it's finished homework is finished when it's finished checked corrected packed back in the book bag in the van by the front door and they've packed their lunch for the next day and picked their clothes out we just made your morning easier then great job never had cheetos on a pb and j but it looks good it'll be crunchy Now, we don't care when you do this, but you still can't do what you want to do till you take care of your contributions to the family. Set the table, take out the trash, whatever it is. You're gonna, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. We're getting the obligations out of the way first. We have got to make sure we give the obligations. School, contribution to the home. And folks, this is not where you say, and I want you to do that with joy in your heart. I am a grown man. I've never cleaned a toilet with joy in my heart. I've tried. I've even, Because I use this, I keep thinking about that when I'm cleaning toilets in my house. Nope, not there. Folks, we don't directly touch the heart. God touches the heart and he uses us to do it. But we first have to get disobedience out of the way. Our target is the obedience, disobedience first. All we're looking for is the child goes and completes the task Reasonably, but they stomped as they were going. They were going away. You don't have to engage. I hear people all the time talking to their kids, giving them 48 answers. I'm like, folks, stop talking. At any point, do you think your child's gonna say, Mother, now that you said that, oh my gosh, I'm gonna go clean my, I'm gonna call my friends and encourage them to clean their rooms. Has that ever happened? No. Let them go. Let them be miserable until they comply. When the job is finished, great job. Now you get to go do whatever we've said yes to in that big box. Would that not change your grammar school student's day? Trust me, it would make them a better student in in the classroom as well. The second thing cause and effect does is it gives the problem to the person it belongs to. How many times, when your child does something bad, who's most upset, us or them? We are, we didn't do it. I've never met a child that wants to solve my problem. If they did it, I've got to give them the problem. I'll use my son as an example. My son's older now, but let's say he's 16 at home and he's driving. And I say, David, your job is to take Big Blue to the end of the street on Tuesday night because trash comes on Wednesday morning. Wednesday morning, I'm back out of the driveway. It's not there. What do I do? Well, my son is 6'6", 200 pounds, collegiate athlete. I don't go kicking his door in. Um, I take the can out because I want the trash to go. I come home that night and say, hey man, I I don't know what happened. Until your next chance to show me that you understand your job, when's his next chance? week later, the car doesn't go anywhere. Who's miserable now? The one who should be. Really simple rule. In most cases, the misery principle the one who is most miserable typically has the most motivation for change. If we keep holding on to the problems, we keep trying to force change on them. They're not trying to change. When we give them the problem, they now have motivation. A week goes by, I go downstairs, David, hey, time to take the trash out. Oh, already did it. Called Four, four friends called. I left notes everywhere to remind myself because he wants to drive. We gave him the problem. Third thing calls and effect does is it teaches the lesson without obedience. See, behaviorism says we can guarantee obedience. Folks, we can't guarantee obedience. And our kids leave our home still cooking. Our job is just throw all the right ingredients in, as many as we can. They're still cooking when they leave our home. They're still learning. My son could say, I hate trash. I've seen what y'all put in there. I'm never taking that can out. So the next year and a half, he's in our home. He never takes the trash out. What else does not move? His car. When my son leaves for college, he will know we valued obedience. He will know obedience to authority matters, whether he agrees with it or not, because cause and effect teaches lessons when there's not obedience. Fourth category, limit distractions. Two major distractions in parenting today um, are extracurriculars, primarily travel sports, and technology. Um, I, I was an athlete, my wife was an athlete, my son's a collegiate athlete, my daughter was a very high rated equestrian in the state of Virginia. I coached basketball for 11 years multiple, with my kids, with the teams that won multiple state titles, a national title in one field. We love athletics. Love, love, love athletics. Travel sports is typically not healthy for most families the way we do it now. During COVID, all of that shut down, and you all may be hearing on the news that we've devastated our children with depression and anxiety over COVID lockdowns. Do you know that the stats aren't there to show that? The only study we have, was we looked at 20 some million insurance claims, which document information about how children are doing and adults. Here's what we found out during 2020. This came out in 2021. It's the only mass study we have like this that's out so far. CDC does not have any new numbers. It showed us that prior to COVID, us adults, one in 10 of us were reporting clinically significant levels of anxiety and depression. Post COVID after 2020, four in 10 of us were showing that. We got worse. Rates of diagnosing depression and anxiety in children actually went down during COVID. I worked with about 500 families in 2020. That matches what I saw in my own office. Life slowed down. They started having dinner again. The kids started cooking with their families. We actually reclaimed our family structure, but we did it Accidentally. 2021, everything started opening up again. Halfway through 2021, we've started to lose that again. We can we can reclaim that. I've had that privilege of working with many ACC coaches. We actually had a seven foot two kid for several years in our schools. So we had every coach you can think of in the ACC coming through our gym. And I used to go to their coaching conferences. And um, to a coach, they would say, we typically don't like travel athletes. Now it's different than an elite showcase team, junior, senior year, because scouts are looking at you. But the kids that have been in travel athletics all the way up through, they're hard to coach, they're elitist, they play for the wrong reasons, they don't know how to play as a team, out of the mouths of the best coaches in the ACC basketball. It's the same with soccer, same with lacrosse. I'm not saying it's not a healthy thing to do, it has to be done in balance. And most families don't do it in balance. The second thing is technology, primarily social media. I'm gonna tell you the story I told the kids today and then then I'm gonna leave you with one thing and then we're gonna stop because I realize I'm squeezing the time. We know in every category that since the development of social media, really the last 10 years, uh, we've seen increased depression and anxiety in children and in adults from the use of social media. The studies are now out. The last two, three years, it's all started to come out publicly. Um, And so I told the students today, I said, I'm not telling you not to use social media. I'm just going to walk you through the effects of social media. And so I told them about a guy that came to see me. He was a heavily recruited 300-pound linebacker. Came from another town just to see me because he was so embarrassed about going to counseling. Um, he was suicidal, homicidal, attempted to ki- well, attempted or was thinking about killing another person. Um, really bad situation. He came in my office, sat down, and we started talking. And he was eat up with, with things that are posted about him online. He was recruited. Some people hated that. Some people liked it. He'd play a game. Everybody micromanage it, put it all over social media. So I said to him, and i call him Ben. I said, Ben, if I'm going to help you, we've got to get this out of your life. I said, because we can't touch anything with this still in your life. And he said, well, what, are you, what are you talking about? I said, you've got to go dark for a month. And he said, what does dark mean? I said, you can't even look at the weather on your mom's phone. He's like, Pff. I said, you're coming in here. You're about to lose scholarship. You threaten to kill somebody. Really? You can't give up your phone? He's like, fine. I said, well, I gotta get your parents in here because I don't trust you. He said, I wouldn't trust me either. And so I get the parents in. They end up going to a 7-Eleven, getting him a flip phone that doesn't even text. I didn't know you could still get those, but that's kind of cool. Um, because he travels and, and they wanted to be in contact. I said, I'm cool with that. And he couldn't use a computer unless it was mandated for a school assignment and the parents were monitoring it for a month. So here's his journey for a month, and I have hundreds of these, hundreds, that demonstrate this. He comes in one week later, 300-pound linebacker, my height, an extra 100 pounds, and he won't sit down. I don't have a giant office. He's pacing the whole time. This is horrible. I can't believe you did this to me. Do you even have a license? This is ridiculous. You get my parents in here right now. I'm missing out on everything. You're ruining my life for 40 Probably forty-three minutes. Then we processed it a little bit, and I got him to leave. He comes in week two, sits on my couch. I'm thinking progress. He looks at me and he goes, "You know, I could take you out." <laughs> Remember, he came to me threatening to kill someone, and I said, uh, "I said what?" And he said, "I'm just letting you know I could take you out." They saw me come in here, but I could. Okay, we processed that. Week three, he comes in, he sits down on my couch, he leans back, and he goes because I didn't know what was going to happen now. He said, you're good. (laughs) I'm not getting killed. And I said, what do you mean? He said, in three weeks, I've missed out on nothing. He said, no, actually, I've missed out on nothing of value. I've missed out on things that have got me in fights, got me to lose a scholarship, got me arrested. I've only heard about days later. I've missed out on nothing of value. By week four, he came in. Every every measure we could take, his anxiety and depression had plummeted. And he said to me, he said, I have no idea what I'm doing different, and I don't know why, but every relationship in my life is better. Coaches, teachers, peers, parents, siblings. And he goes, I don't even like my siblings, and I'm getting along with them. Our job after that was helping him learn how to manage it with a very, very small footprint. The reason I tell you that is those two things, when we have our children running constantly or when they are eat up in the technology world, our voice doesn't get through. The other three things we talked about all relate to your voice being valuable to your children. It's important. Last thing I'll tell you. If, um, so remember the four categories. Boundaries, start identifying who you are as a family, what you say yes to, what you say no to, what really is true, good, and beautiful. We need to say yes to those things. Second category is do less, require more. This is where the rubber meets the road. You answer, none of you all came up with anything you could think of your ch- children couldn't do unless limited by strength or development. So we have no excuse not to give them things to do. Third category is connect calls and effect. The fourth is limit distractions. So I was asked this a couple years ago. Uh, if I had five minutes and I could only say one thing to parents and I would never see them again, what would I share with them? This is what I would share with you. If you remember nothing else but you want to change the environment in your home, because we also are emotionally disoriented, not only are our students. Um, Earthquakes have a Richter scale zero to ten. Really they do. If it's a one or two you hear about on the news, if it's three or four you think a big truck drove by the building, if it's a five stuff starts shaking. Everything above a five does major damage. We have an emotional Richter scale. Here's our brain, here are our emotions. Okay. When our emotions go up here, our brain doesn't work real well. This is five. Most of our parenting we do up here. It's almost as if we interpret that feeling as energy to go do good parenting things. If you want to change the atmosphere in your home, then never engage when you're up here. Walk away. This is where we confront psychology because psychology tells us dumb things. If you have a problem with your child, when should you deal with it? right away. Really? If it's a problem, will it show up again? Yes. You'll have as many bites of that apple as you need until you deal with it well. We've got to be able to walk away because we also do not always have the best emotional management. It will change the environment in your family. It'll change the environment in your marriage. It'll change the environment with coworkers if we choose not to engage when we're above a five. And you have to keep one thing in perspective that we didn't talk about yet, but I talked about your students. Most things in life are not a big deal. My grandma used to say, it's not a big deal unless your head's on fire, you're bleeding out of your eyeball. What happened in your childhood, granny, that you have that point of reference? Um, I asked the students today, just so you know, I said, using my grandma's definition and barring a family tragedy, how many of you have had a big deal this month? No hands went up. How many of you have had a big deal in the last six months? Six months! I had two people kind of going, "Uh." how many of you have had a big deal this year? What do we have, six hands, eight hands go up? Of, of how many students, hundred students? Think about that. And then I said, well, how many of us have acted like we've already had a big deal this week and they all raised their hands? We operate with a distortion about what really is a big deal in life. Most things are not a big deal. They do not, they do not need to be engaged when we're in high emotion. So I went way too long, but we can still take a couple questions. Okay.
0: For sure, yeah. Okay. Uh, you want to join me on stage? Yep, that'd be great. Okay, cool. And then if you want to bring up the uh, QR code, I've had a few questions uh, submitted already, and then uh, yeah, well, they can, we can, can
1: they can raise their hands too. Oh yeah, you can
0: raise your hands too. So, but um, so uh, um, so I'll I'll get it started if you don't mind. No, yeah, go ahead. So got, yeah. So uh, for a friend, you're going to ask
1: me about parenting. right What's that? For a friend. Oh, oh for a friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so uh, could you uh, elaborate just a little bit on the difference between self-esteem versus self-confidence?
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I'll change it. Self-esteem versus self-image, self-concept. Um, the self-esteem movement said, I'm going to convince you you're a great person and you're going to get obsessed with self in the process. The problem is we're broken. The more we self-obsess, the more we realize we're not perfect. The more we dwell on the fact that we're actually broken, it ends up creating more depression. I don't want my children to have the highest self-esteem, I want them to have a correct self-concept or self-image, that they're broken yet loved. That's amazing. When children understand, I am broken, I'm not always going to be perfect, I will struggle with some things, you know, I, I'm going to have to learn to deal with that, but I'm loved, I have value. That's amazing, and what that develops in a child. That should be our target, speaking God's truth into their life, that you're a broken individual, but your value is immense and you're loved, rather than you're the best thing since sliced bread, because the more they focus on it, the more they realize they're not.
0: That's great, because um, you know, that's, that's one challenge for, for me in my position, is that you know, I deal a lot with families coming to me saying, you know, oh man, my, my, my child just has such low self-esteem. You know and 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 so we need to we need to change that so uh, you talked a, a little bit about the negative effects of um, social media mm-hmm. and a 300 pound guy getting a phone that can only call my wife said she wants one of those so <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any recommendations on sort of the appropriate age for um, letting a kid have a phone or for letting a kid be on social media
1: yeah um, I don't recommend if we pay attention to stats Of what we now know with research, and I pay attention to what I've dealt with in my office, um, I don't recommend a cell phone at all for any purpose until they're driving. And and I will suggest to you that social media comes a long time after that, if ever. Think about it this way. Um, Alcohol, tobacco, and gambling are all highly addictive. The last to fall was big tobacco. We have an age limit on all three of those. It's 21. Why? Because all research tells us the later in life you are before you're introduced to those highly addictive things, the less possibility of addiction occurs. We know those folks who are dying of lung cancer began smoking as kids and teenagers. The most addicted gamblers started gambling when they were younger. Um, those who are alcoholics primarily the worst ones started when they were children funny thing is we know that the way the brain works we get a higher addictive response from social media and first person gaming than we do from any of those three so we're practicing addiction there's a person that does go around and talk about this and he talks about introducing your children early and training them how to use it goes against all science we know of addiction all science the longer our children go before they're exposed to something that highly addictive, it allows them to develop self-regulation and self-discipline. And so we're not training addiction at that point. So I, you know, I, I don't recommend a phone until they're driving. Um, and then when they're driving, it's not necessarily a smartphone right away, or it's not turned on as all the smart functions. Your children cannot use the mapping function in their own hometown. You want them to learn where they live and where things are. Just think through that a little bit. Um, And social media, uh, social media period is unhealthy. What I told the students today, all social media platforms operate with one question. They're always answering. I have a friend in the business, they hire people like me to work for their companies to figure out what, what can we do to make this more addictive. The end user version of that is what can I show Sally to make her stay on one more minute? Well. We all know we're broken, and we know without thinking about it, we pay attention more to negative things than to positive. We're drawn to negative. That's why I primarily news is negative. So, do you know what all the companies have figured out? The next thing we need to show you needs to be more dysfunctional, more deviant, more negative, more salacious. When you track social media, the longer a user is on at any one point, the content has gotten worse. So that's what I mean, that's the game it's playing the number one social media platform, which is funny, the students didn't, as one boy knew it, the number one social media platform is what? YouTube. It is absolutely social media. It's where chat begins, where contact begins, but people think it's tame. So I, I just, yeah, I, people ask me all the time, well, well, just give me an age. It's like saying, well, when can we introduce cocaine? And people look at me like, well, I'm not asking that. I'm like, well, actually you kind of are. Yeah, I mean, if, we underst- if you understand addiction, and I've been in this field forever, um, yeah, you are. There's no place to introduce it. I hate that my children now are on social media. They were not all the way through our home. Uh, both of them will say, our friend- my friends are addicted. We can't go to dinner without them being on their phones. My son's like, I'm not sure where my phone is. I mean, it's, it's amazing. So when the longer you wait, the better they'll navigate it.
0: You're making me feel guilty for asking questions off my phone. So,
1: Well, <laughs> so,
0: um, okay. Next question, please. Right. So this is a good question because um, uh, you know, like I, I, I kind of thought that you know, the least value for our families would be those who where your youngest child was like a junior or a senior or something along those lines. Like, what what are you going to tell me about parenting when I'm uh, you know done with this stage and they're they're about ready to leave? So this question is, how does a parent start with children that are 17 uh, and 18?
1: That's a great question. Remember the guy that came to see me that was in his 40s? Where did I start with him? Just start becoming a little bit more basically functional. i give you a very simple way to think about it. Um, demonstration of maturity, which means demonstration of maturity is I can do the things you ask me to do even if I don't want to. And basic responsibility, I handle things appropriately, where, and you tell this to your teenagers, wherever that is, we will put freedom and privilege right under it. So when you grow that, we're going to give you more freedom and privilege. Another way to look at maybe a better example, and I'll send this to you, it's a diagram I made. Um, Imagine a bullseye target, archer's target. The center of the circle is the kid job, respect, responsibility in school most things we can put in those three categories so that's their job respect responsibility in school decent attitude handle responsibilities which means we give them responsibilities in school it's kind of their job when that's going well they get to go out one ring and the next ring is simple typically in-home freedoms and privileges you get to have kid over you get to stay up watch a movie night on friday night a little bit you know you just get some basic freedoms when you start getting those simple freedoms And over a period of time, you're still managing your job well, you get to go on another ring. And the next ring are the more elaborate, typically out of home freedoms. This, This is where extracurriculars are, this is where all the other bigger activities are. When you start getting that and you're still managing your job, that just keeps expanding, keeps expanding. If you stop doing the middle, we shrink it back down and wait on you. It's a very simple process. I have teenagers in my office all the time i I draw on the board i say this is what i think your biggest daily problem is pretty much regardless of the problem they come in with i write the word maturity and i say here's what maturity is understanding what's right and being able to do it even when you don't feel like it you don't want to they all say how'd you know that yeah well we have got to help them get there by how we change that cycle hold them accountable when they're not managing when they are managing we grow it That's how they develop that maturity.
0: Awesome. Um, Can we validate feelings and reconcile that they do not discern truth? And then how?
1: Yes. Um, Yeah, we've been through this big push with the self-esteem movement. We have to validate every emotion. Validation, we're saying that the feeling is legitimate to the situation. We should not validate any emotion. We should show empathy for every emotion. Emotions are extremely valuable. I don't want anybody, and I talked to the students about this today, in no way are emotions necessarily bad. I mean, two great things we see with emotions, emotions allow us to more, um, more richly experience God's creation. You know, if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, you're like, whoa, emotions allow us depth in relationship. I mean, emotions are a wonderful thing given to us by God. The problem is they don't discern truth. So our job is not to validate emotions. Our job is to show empathy for emotions, but then help our children see truth. So a child comes in, they're upset. We can say, man, I can tell you're upset. Not, oh, I'm so sorry, you're so upset. That's over-sympathizing. We distort their ability to know whether or not they should be upset. You know, a lot of times when a child's upset, it's really not a big deal. But their emotions are the first thing they paid attention to, and so they start believing it's a really big deal. And so our job is to show empathy rather than validate if they're upset. Say, man, I can tell you're upset. You want to talk about it? And if, and if their emotion is incompatible with reality, through that conversation, we help them see it. We, I mean, I had a conversation with students today, and I, through our conversation, I had 6th through 12th grade students raising their hands, saying none of them had had a big deal this year, yet they all felt like they had this week. It's amazing what kids are capable of when we give them that information. So...
0: That's great. Um, so, yeah, we we need to wrap up. So uh, there was one question that I would be able to answer. And it says, uh, how do I not forget everything you told me no. tonight? So, <laughs> OK, and, and somewhere somewhere in the back,
1: um, there are bookmarks because people keep bookmarks and we throw away all kinds of papers we're given at conferences and stuff um, on the bookmark. On one side are the key points of the parenting that we talked about tonight. On the back side are 10 different ways to unplug your children from technology. On the bottom is my website. If you go to my website, my website does two things. It's a landing spot for the consulting I do, but there's free stuff we're developing for parents. If you go to my website, there's a podcast link. There's probably 25 podcasts I've done on parenting. You go listen for free. Um, if you sign up for my newsletter, guess what you get once a month? An article. It comes out of MailChimp. You get nothing else. I will not spam you. I will not sell your address to anybody. I don't even see the address. All you get once a month is an article on parenting or marriage or something like that. So the idea is building a resource for parents. So when you leave, grab a bookmark. That gives you resources. Yeah,
0: and uh, additionally, we did uh, record tonight, uh, and so that will be available uh, on demand. And then also, uh, we will drop it as a podcast. Uh, so that'll that'll help you along with the uh, along with the along with yep. the bookmark. So. Uh, do you have any final just sort of thoughts or recommendations to us as a, as, as a community, right? So we, we are uh, a community, we're, we're a school community, uh, and just sort of, you know, we've, we've taken in a lot today, and it's been, it's been great. It's been fabulous. And so just any, any thoughts for us moving forward?
1: When parents come and work with me, inevitably they say, well, number one, did you really hear anything you didn't know? Not really. We know truth. I mean, I didn't invent any of this stuff. But parents say to me, we know this is right, but we're going to be the spotted unicorn in the neighborhood if we do this. Parents are dying for a community of other parents that want to parent their children well. What I would tell you is you actually have it. You have it in the community of your church. You have it in the community of the school. You can work as a community. The community you have, you can use. And most school communities, we don't think of parenting as being part of our community discussion and activity and things like that. Folks, it should be. You don't have to be the only spotted unicorn. It's cool to be weird, especially when you're weird with a bunch of other people who are being weird. So that's what I would tell you is find community of other people. And I got to tell you this, these things we've talked about The thought a lot of parents have is, oh my gosh, I'm going to wreak havoc in my home. You know what? After about a week or two, you're going to laugh at some of the stuff your kids say. They're going to be like, oh, it's just horrible. You're ruining my life. And you're going to not say anything and they're going to walk away and you're going to look at each other and go, because you just realize they're growing. You're not taking the bait anymore. You're holding them accountable for stuff.
0: That's awesome. So then, uh, yeah, just as a um, yeah, final reminder then, yeah, make sure you grab the, uh, the bookmark will be at the, at the back there. And then also if you have an upper school student, um, we have the, uh, the dress down tickets for Monday are back to my left, your right, Mrs. Harmon has those. So you wanna make sure you grab those, otherwise your, your upper school student will be very upset with you if you don't grab your uh, dress down ticket for, uh, for Monday. And then lastly, um, uh, Keith's not done. Uh, so Keith is going to uh, meet with uh, the men. So New Covenant Church has a ministry called Hall of Men. Uh, and we're going to gather over in C108. And so if you came tonight and you were like, I did not know anything about Hall of Men. But you would like to stay and join us, you are, you are more, than, more than welcome to. Uh, but first, if you've got kids, go get your kids. right? Okay. All right. So let me, let me close this in prayer. Father heaven, thank you for Keith being here uh, this evening and uh, we do pray uh, that we are able to remember the wisdom that he shared, that we're able to uh, apply it to our lives as, as parents, uh, as husbands, as wives, uh, but ultimately as your children. And much of what Keith has shared to us tonight is just helping us to imitate you as our Father in heaven. So we pray that you would give us the grace to be able to do so. We thank you, we love you, we praise you, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone says, amen. Thank you for coming out. Appreciate it.